Hello and welcome to Your Best Self, a podcast about careers. I'm your host, Faye Rowlands, lawyer and journalist, and together in this podcast, we'll hear from inspirational people spanning the worlds of business, politics, law, media, science, art, and more, sharing what they love most about their jobs, how they handle setbacks, and offer listeners their tips to career success. I hope this podcast informs and inspires you to think big and encourages you to go after the dream job you want. Well, over the course of her career, my guest this week has delivered over 1,000 babies. Dr. Vicky O'Dwyer is a mum of three, a consultant obstetrician and director of gynaecology at the Rotunda Hospital here in Dublin. She holds a medical doctorate, completed a fellowship in maternal medicine and went on to run a national preterm prevention clinic before joining the Rotunda. In this episode, she tells me what sparked her passion for medicine and in particular her love of the labour ward. We discuss everything from baby booms in a pandemic to the cervical screening programme and how the 2018 referendum which repealed Ireland's abortion ban has impacted clinical practice and maternal medicine in Ireland. I started, though, by asking Vicky for her impression of Adam Kay's Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor and bestseller, This Is Going to Hurt, which, if you haven't read, I highly recommend. I actually read this book sitting in an airport on my way home from a conference, and I was that person laughing out loud that I'd say people were walking past thinking, what is she reading? But it's a brilliant book, and yes, a lot of the stories do, I suppose, ring true for me as well. A brilliant book. And could you identify with that? Because I suppose we're used to a lot of these legal dramas, medical dramas on television. And, you know, we know we take them with a bit of a pinch of salt. But I'd love to know whether, yeah, whether those aspects of the book did ring true for you. Could you identify with it and, and relate to some of those feelings and anecdotes? And, and was it an accurate portrayal as somebody reading it who works in this area? Yeah, I think it was. And certainly some of the funny stories. Yes, they do happen. I suppose I don't want to be uh, spoiling the book, but I guess I didn't see the end coming. You do have to be resilient in my job. And I was kind of surprised by, by the ending of the book because I think it's happy medicine and I can't imagine ever leaving obstetrics as a career. Yeah, I think the ending probably did shock a lot of people and, and, and leading up to it, it probably was not what you were expecting. As you said, I suppose this is a very happy, uplifting area in general to be in in medicine. But I'd love to take you back, if I can, to starting out. So you grew up in Dublin. I understand you were the, the eldest of two girls growing up. And I suppose if you're going into medicine straight out of school, people assume that you must have been a bit of a, a brain box to get there. What sort of a student would you have described yourself as in school at that time? So, yeah, uh, like, I don't know about the brain box bit. I certainly worked very hard. And I think everybody who gets into medicine is focused and does work hard to get there. And I guess it was something that I decided I wanted to do around fourth year. Um, so my dad had bypass surgery for a heart condition and it all happened really suddenly. And I guess I was so grateful to the surgeon that did his operation and saved him. And I thought, gosh, if I could change a family's life like that, that'd be fantastic. So I got into medicine thinking that I wanted to be a surgeon. And I guess it was only when I was there and as a med student that I, I sort of changed my mind. So 
I did my obstetric rotation in Hollis Street in fourth year of medicine. And I just remember being there and thinking, this is fantastic. And being at that first delivery and thinking, wow, like this is, this is definitely what I want to do. Obviously, that must have had a really profound impact, what had happened with your dad. Is it easy then as a med student, I understand you went to UCD, did your six years of medicine there. Does it become very clear to you very quickly which area of medicine you want to specialize in? No, I think it was towards, I suppose, towards the latter stage of the training. And you get really good exposure to all the different areas. So I did a bit of pediatrics, I did psychiatry, medicine, surgery. And I guess it was just obstetrics just clicked with me and then went to did my intern year and went straight into obstetrics after that. And so, as you said there, can you remember the very first day you set foot in your first maternity hospital, the first delivery? Yeah, like it, I suppose in some ways it's a little bit daunting. You don't know what to expect. And I guess you, the way it worked when I was doing it is you did three sessions on the labor board and you were there for the whole labor. So you got to know the couple and you were there for the delivery. And like, it was just so fantastic. It's such, I suppose, an important point in someone's life and to see it all go well and to be part of that was, was fantastic. So special. And I suppose you can see the whole team in action and, and, you know, how everything goes. And as you said, when you get that happy ending at the end of the day, I'm sure there's no feeling like that. Yeah. And I suppose to this day, it's it's still my favorite part of the job. I love being on the labor board and I suppose it's exciting. And, you know, sometimes you have to make decisions and it can be a little bit dramatic, but for the most part, you know, we have healthy mums, healthy babies and things go really well. And for people who maybe haven't set foot in a labor ward before, what is the atmosphere like? How would you describe the atmosphere on the ward and what might a typical day look like for you? I guess it's busy. So the Rotunda is Ireland's busiest maternity hospital. Um, and I think maybe some of your listeners will have seen the program. Um, so, and, and it's very true to life. So when they film the program, they have uh, wall mounted cameras and I suppose people would say they forget that they're there. Um, and you really get a sense of what it's like. And the Rotunda is such a, a lovely place to work. Like it's a real community kind of family feel. And the culture is very much everybody helps everybody out. And I suppose we're all here to do what's best for the women and their families that are attending. We started actually filming series three, but uh, within, I suppose, a couple of days of that, we had to stop, I suppose, because of the increasing numbers. But I think everybody wants to know what it's like to have a baby at the moment. Um, and I suppose I want to reassure most people that things are pretty much the same, uh, except the masks. And I suppose we're trying to keep our mums and our babies as safe as we can. But for the most part, things are, are very similar to what they would have been before. And what have you had to do, Vicky, at the Rotunda to adapt to the pandemic? So I suppose the first thing is our outpatient department. We sort of spread out our appointments during the day, trying to keep it socially distant. We've, I suppose, changed how we do a, a lot of things, trying to keep, I suppose, everybody as safe as possible. So we have a daycare unit where a lot of people can be managed so they don't have to be admitted. And I guess what you have to remember is most of these women aren't sick. They might have a pregnancy-related complication, um, and that makes them really suitable for, for daycare. Um, and then we started our home inductions as well, which is, is great. So it means that for the first phase of induction, of labor that a lot of women can come in, have the initial part done and go home for 24 hours. So I suppose it minimizes again, the amount of time that they're in hospital. And I suppose it's one of these areas of medicine that, you know, it kind of has to keep going. People are still going to continue to have babies, pandemic or no pandemic. I, I almost feel like in the pandemic, well, 
just from the outside looking in, it almost feels like there's more people having babies than ever. Have you noticed that in the rotunda? Are your numbers very, very busy coming through the door? Yeah, I think numbers are definitely up. So what I would have seen is in the first lockdown in March, I think people were really cautious and kind of held off on getting pregnant if they were thinking about it. And a lot of the IVF units closed down. Whereas since then, I think people have just realized they have to get on with life. And we're definitely seeing more people getting pregnant again. And I suppose people worry about being pregnant and the effects that COVID can have. And for the vast majority of women who do get us who are pregnant, they get the same mild illness that everybody else gets. And I guess you want to try and prevent that happening if at all possible. But the risks seem to be very small and we've had very few women that have been extremely sick. That is reassuring for people to hear that the generally outcomes broadly have been good. And has it been something that, you know, you've really greatly noticed in your practice in your day to day? Would you be dealing with, I suppose, a lot of COVID patient mothers or has it been something that really you've managed to minimize the impact on on the hospital as a whole? Yeah, I suppose we've adapted to it. So we have specific clinics for people who have COVID positive who still need to be seen. Um, We have a COVID theatre. So I suppose it does affect how you do, let's say a cesarean section. So if we have someone who's COVID positive, they come in to have their cesarean section, the theatre is sealed off, everybody's wearing PPE. It takes a bit longer um, and the time in between cases, it does slow things down. But for the moment, for the baby, it's very safe. Um, And I suppose, thankfully, what we've seen is lots of healthy babies. And I thought it was really interesting that the first baby of this year was born to a mum who was COVID positive. And like you could see from the pictures in the paper how healthy she looked and how well her baby looked. And I thought that was was really important to show that. I know there's been an awful lot of publicity at the moment that partners haven't always been in a position to attend scans due to, to safety regulations in various different hospitals. What is the situation with the Rotunda? So I suppose we were one of the few hospitals that did allow the dads to continue to come in for the big scan or the anatomy scan. Um, and that continued, I suppose, up until the most recent wave where the numbers really went up. And I guess the, the management here had to take the, the difficult decision to stop that or pause that, to protect the women, to protect the staff. And if the staff get sick, you know, who's going to look after the mums and babies? Thankfully, most of us have had at least the first round of the vaccine. I've had both and very happy to have had both. For the most part for labour and delivery, the dads have been there, whether that's a normal delivery on the labour ward or whether it's a caesarean section. And we've also continued visiting hours in the evenings for the dads to come in, whether that's for the mums on the antenatal ward or after delivery. And so as we've noted there, this seems to be a fairly positive, happy, uplifting area of medicine to be in. But, you know, you touched on as well that you're often working under a lot of pressurized situations. There's a lot of tight deadlines and, you know, big decisions have to be made within a relatively short time frame. How do you handle that pressure day to day? How do you cope with that pressure? Is that something that's gotten easier for you over time? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess with experience, you get better at making those decisions. And they talk about the art of obstetrics. So no two women are the same. No two pregnancies are the same. And I guess experience helps you make the right decision. I guess as a person, I'm okay with with a little bit of uncertainty and a little bit of risk as well, which I think you have to be. But I suppose what you're doing is you're making the best decision at that moment in time for that mum and her baby. 
And we've touched again on some of the aspects that seem really enjoyable about this job. I mean, you've said yourself, there's nothing else like that. There's no other feeling like that. It's a huge, huge moment for people in their lives. Yet this is your day to day. But what is the aspect of the job that maybe you find more difficult or more challenging? I guess it's when things don't go to plan or don't go well. And I guess I've looked after couples over the years where things haven't gone well, whether that's a miscarriage or preterm birth. And I would have run a preterm birth clinic for just over a year when I was working as a locum consultant in the National Maternity Hospital. And I guess you get to know the people really well. And sometimes despite everything you might do, it it doesn't work out the way that you would hope. And that's very difficult because you sort of feel like, you know, you're in it with them and you want things to go as well as they can. And I suppose I looked after this, this one lovely couple who unfortunately had two miscarriages and I met them in their second pregnancy. And, you know, they were just the nicest people. And, you know, it was devastating for them when things didn't work out. And they came back again in their third pregnancy and we tried something slightly different and things went really well and ended with the birth of a gorgeous baby girl full term and I did the cesarean section and I have to say it was one of I suppose my highlights of my career you know it's it's those particular people that touch you and and it's what makes it important you know And, you know, I know you spoke earlier there of miscarriage, and that is something that's gotten an awful lot of publicity, I think, in more recent years. And I know, was it late last year that Meghan Markle spoke out about her experience of having a miscarriage? Do you think that is something that, as a society, we are becoming more open now in how we discuss those issues and and normalizing those issues and removing any stigma that people might feel? Yeah, I think there's definitely more talk about it on social media and I suppose when people like Meghan Markle speak out about it, you know, it highlights it. I guess what I've seen is that for women who have a miscarriage, it's not until they have one that their friends or someone close to them will say, look, this happened to me too. And I think that's really important because what a lot of people fear is that when they do have a miscarriage, that it's going to happen again and that they're not going to have a baby ever. And for the vast majority of people, that's not the case, you know? And I think speaking out about it is important because there is a grief that comes with it. Some people are very resilient, bounce back and and get pregnant again. But for others, you know, they really feel that loss. And I think we have to normalize that. And then as a doctor, obviously a lot of the time things are very happy and go very well. Other days I'm sure are tougher where people aren't getting good news. How do you then switch off at the end of the day or do you, can you switch off? at the end of a day like that? Yeah, um, I guess, I suppose you have to switch off. And that's, I suppose, part of resilience. I have three kids and two of them are boys and they're very active. So that's made me probably a much more active person in the last couple of years. So whether it's, I mean, the, in the summer we go to La Hinch a lot and my eldest is mad for surfing. So I would go surfing with him. I spent a lot of time in the water. He spends a lot of time on the board. <laughs> And yeah, I guess it's about finding stuff outside of work that takes your mind off it, keeps you engaged, keeps you happy. 
And Vicky, I know you've said in the past that you think your experience of being pregnant and giving birth, that has helped make you a better obstetrician and a better clinician. You know, why is that? I think it's interesting to be on the other side, you know, to be the patient, not to be the doctor. Certain things like, I mean, you know, it's absolutely exhausting being pregnant. And I suppose some of the things that happened along the way, I was induced for my first pregnancy. So knowing what that's like on a personal level, I breastfed my kids and I suppose that's something we don't learn a huge amount during training. So the the tips and tricks that I can give as advice to mums, you know, in those first couple of days, that's kind of helpful just to have that, I suppose, inside knowledge. Who would have inspired you along your own career path? Who would you have looked to for inspiration? I suppose my first mentor um, was Professor Michael Turner in the COOM. So he was my supervisor for my medical doctorate. I spent two years working for him looking at cesarean section and body composition. And I guess, you know, he took me through even simple things like how to present in public. I guess he was my first mentor and he would give me advice in terms of career progression. And certainly having worked for him for two years, my CV was vastly improved. Um, So I guess he was the first person really and there've been lots of people along the way, but I guess the next person would be Rona Mahoney, who was um, master of Hollis Street. Um, and I did my fellowship there. I would have spent some time as a trainee there as well. I, I mean, she's such a dynamic person um, and such a brilliant clinician. And I think the combination of the two, you just can't help but be inspired by her. And Vicky, how long does it take to reach a consultancy post in medicine? A long time. <laughs> So I suppose that the minimum is three years of basic training, five years of specialist training, but most people will also do two to three years research and one to two years of a fellowship. And then some people do locum jobs before they get their permanent posts. You know, the average is probably around 12 years. I know you'd previously led the colposcopy department at the Rotunda Hospital and more recently you've been appointed as their director of gynaecology. How have you found the transition from traditional clinical practice to a senior leadership position or a management role within the healthcare setting? Um, I guess you're moving from being very focused on one particular patient to looking at the service and how you can benefit all the patients that are attending. It's great in the Rotunda that we have an executive management team um, who basically run the hospital day to day. They're overseeing everything and I would report to them and like we all work as a team. So one of the great things is that innovation is really embraced here and we've made lots of positive changes and that's part of the culture of the hospital. And I've really enjoyed the management side of things so far. What would you like to achieve with this new role, this leadership position that you've been given within the hospital? I mean, what would your your goal be to achieve with that platform? So I suppose the first thing is that we're opening our new Rotunda Gynecology in March. This is a a building on campus where we're going to have all our outpatient clinics, procedure rooms, ultrasound. So it's an expansion of our service. We're offering an increase in our fertility services, urogynecology. And I guess it's, it's been highlighted that waiting lists are an issue nationally for gynecology and we want to increase access to women's health. So I suppose overall, we want to reduce our waiting times, but we want to provide, you know, excellent women-centered care is really what it's all about. 
in recent years, there's been a lot of publicity around the cervical check scandals of, of women who've been misdiagnosed. There have been some, you know, very brave advocates who've spoken out about this, like Vicky Phelan, and those advocates themselves would say to women that they should still use these services and stress the importance of these services. But I'd be very interested to hear your view as a clinician working in this area. Do you think that that those misdiagnoses or those scandals, for want of a better word, have you know undermined the the system or maybe undermined public confidence in the system? Do you think people's you know women still will actively go and seek out and use these services? Yeah, I think there was, I suppose, a loss of confidence in the service. Um, one of the really positive things is that the screening program changed in March of uh, 2020 um, and we moved to HPV screening rather than the traditional smear test. So I suppose to explain how it works, if you screen a thousand women, 20 will have abnormal cells and the traditional smear test will pick up 15 of those 20, whereas the new HPV test is going to pick up 18 of the 20. So it's a better test. And to the woman, it'll feel the same. So it's taken in the same way, but in the lab, it's processed differently. And I guess we have to accept that it's a screening test and we won't pick up every abnormality. So there's still going to be two women in a thousand where we don't get a result that's correct. But I suppose what we know is that screening does reduce deaths from cervical cancer. And if you do engage with the program, the more reassuring results you get, the less likely you are going to end up with a, a cervical cancer. I'd encourage everyone to engage with the program to have the smear test or the HPV test as it now is. And, you know, we have a new director of cervical check, Maureen Russell, who's fantastic. And I think she's been great for the program and she's spoken out about the new screening program. And I think the publicity campaign around it and I suppose highlighting the positive changes um, didn't really get rolled out because of COVID. But I think there's more publicity around it now and hopefully more positivity about the new program. And is that something that is up and running now and fully available despite COVID? You know, there might be some people thinking, oh, maybe I should put that off because of COVID. Or is that something that people should still go for even despite the pandemic? Yeah, so they should still go for it. And they did pause the program in the middle of sort of 2020, but, but they had caught up by the end of it and offered every woman who was due a HPV test was offered an appointment. Now, unfortunately, the take-up wasn't as good as we would have hoped. So I would still encourage women to go and, and have the test done if they can. So whether that's with their GP or if it's a women's health clinic, I find opportunistically in my gynecology clinic, I'd say to someone, have you had it? Are you due it? And if they say, yes, they're due, they haven't managed to get it done, then we'll absolutely do it for them there and then. And I know you touched earlier as well on rolling out greater fertility services at the hospital. Is that also something that is up and running for people and available for people at the moment, despite the pandemic? Yes, yeah, so we have fertility clinics that we're continuing to run. A lot of our clinics are virtual at the moment, so telemedicine, but we can still arrange for people to come in and have blood tests or any other investigations they need. We're hoping to expand so that the Rotunda becomes a fertility hub for I suppose not just our catchment area in North Dublin, but linking with the other RCSI hospitals, Drogheda and Cavan. And we have three consultants who specialise in fertility. So offering the straightforward investigations and then some of the treatments, including follicle tracking and HCG trigger injections, which are, I guess, a step just before IVF, but maybe a little bit more than what some other centres might be offering. Vicky, I know as well that, you know, back in 2018, you had supported the Doctors for Yes 
campaign regarding the changes to the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution regarding um, termination of pregnancy. And, I, you know, I'd be curious to know why you felt it was important to support that campaign. And I'd love to know whether you and your colleagues have noticed a difference in practicing in this area since the law was changed. Yeah, so I guess I supported the campaign because I think people should have the right to choose. And I remember on my first day of work as a consultant, walking into work and passing the yes and no campaign signs uh, as as the campaign was being rolled out. And look, I was delighted that it got approved. And I suppose what I'd see is, you know, there are women coming through and they'll often want to tell their story. And we never ask because I guess it's, it's their choice. And I really feel like I'm there to facilitate that choice. And I suppose there's a variety of reasons that people access the service, whether it's under 12 weeks, whether it's for a fetal anomaly um, or because there's a risk to the mother's health or life. And I think the service has been rolled out for over a year now and is running very well. Um, What I would personally like to see is that free contraception would be provided as part of the service. And I think that's, I suppose, the gap that we're seeing in the under 12 week service, that there isn't a provision for free contraception. And that while GPs and hospitals are giving the advice that for some women, money is a barrier. And um, and I'm hoping that that is something that will change in the future. And has it made things, do you think, easier for the women that you're seeing and easier for the clinicians practicing in this area? Because I suppose prior to that, there had been, you know, a lot of uncertainty. You were in certain circumstances operating under very gray areas and I suppose that's a lot of pressure as well as a clinician to be operating under under the, that threat. Yeah, I think it, it certainly made things safer for women. I guess the case that everybody talks about is the Savita Halapanava case. And faced with that, I suppose, same situation today, yes, it is clearer that we can intervene and that it is within the law to intervene when someone is unwell, septic, and their waters are broken and the baby is not yet viable. So it, it does make that more clear cut. What I would see in the under 12 week group is that more women are probably accessing their GPs and accessing the service earlier. And we know that the earlier it's done, the safer it is. For women with fatal fetal anomalies, you know, I think it's really important that they can have their care here in Ireland under the team that's been looking after them. I'd love to hear as well any advice that you might have for either, you know, your younger self starting out or somebody else who's maybe a prospective medicine student interested in going into this area. What advice would you have for somebody starting out looking at forging a career in this area? Um, I think if you're thinking about medicine most people are fairly set on it Um, and it's great if you get some work experience or some practical experience in the area. In terms of the career, what I would say is just be determined Um, and everybody has setbacks along the way but if you're determined and you're focused and you work hard then things will work out. Vicky, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks, Faith. Hi there. If you've been enjoying this podcast so far, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. This really helps spread the word about the podcast and helps more people to find it. Also, 
If you have any suggestions or there's anyone you'd like to hear from on season two of the podcast, then I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me at yourbestselfpodcast2021 at gmail.com. That's yourbestselfpodcast2021 at gmail.com. 